Well, you may well be aware that over these uh, early weeks in the new year, we've been doing a series on some of the privileges and responsibilities of being a child of God. You know that as Christian people, we are adopted into God's family. We're able to call him our father. It's an extraordinary privilege. But along with that privilege goes responsibilities. And we're thinking today a little bit about family responsibilities. We're looking at that uh, passage in 1 John 3 that Anna read for us earlier. 1 John 3, 10 to 20. If you want to find it in your Bibles, now will be a good time to do so. 1 John chapter 3, looking at verses 10 to 20. It's on page 1,227 uh, in the Bibles. And I'd like to read as I begin verse 18, where John writes, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Some years ago, a group of professional people got together and they were wondering about the nature of love. So they posed the question to a group of four to eight-year-olds, what does love mean? And these were some of the responses they got. Rebecca, aged eight, said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Carl, aged five, said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne, and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> Chrissy, age six, said, Love is when you go out to eat, and you give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. Danny, age seven, Love is when my mummy makes coffee for my daddy, and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. Bobby, age seven, I love this one. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Chris, seven. Love is when mummy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsomer than Robert Redford. <laughs> Chance would be a fine thing. Uh, Lauren, age four. She's delightful this, but I think she'll probably learn. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> But of all of them, I think the prize goes to Nika, age six, who said, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. Very profound, really, isn't it? It's amazing how children can say profound things. If you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. Well, what does John say in this passage? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That is love. It's laying down our lives for one another. As I say, we're doing a series in this first part of the year on the privilege and the responsibilities of being part of God's family. It's an amazing thought, isn't it, that we are part of God's family, that we are his children. Our verse for the year, there up the front, it says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And this is what we are. We are God's children. We are part of his family. He is our father. I wonder if you ever thought just how wonderful that is. Do you know that there are over a thousand names for God in the Hindu faith, but not one of them is father, as I've been told. In Islam, God is the unique creator of the world, the life giver, but he's not the father in this sense. In Judaism, God is father, but only of the nation, not in an individual sense. It's only in the New Testament that we are encouraged to call God our Father. And every believer 
has that privilege. We have been adopted into his family, we are his children, and we can call him our father. But of course, family privileges bring family responsibilities. And today we're focusing on our responsibilities to our brothers and sisters, our Christian siblings, if you like. And our responsibility, quite simply, is to love one another. Not just in theory, but in practice. Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Truly, with sincerity. I think it was George Burns, the US comedian, who once said, the secret to my success was sincerity. When I could fake that, I could fake anything. And the fact is, we hate phonies, don't we? We hate hypocrites, people who profess one thing, but in reality live something quite different. So we mistrust the politician who delivers a speech with a, a break in his voice or a tear in his eye. We think it's just an act. There are only so many times you can hear somebody say, I feel your pain and truly believe them. And the worst sort of phony in many ways is the religious phony. The religious hypocrites were the ones for whom Jesus reserved the harshest of judgments. The ones who talked a good game, but whose lives never remotely matched up. It's the one today, I suppose, who claims to be religious, who attends church every Sunday, who's known to be a given to charity, but in reality is an adulterer or a fraudster. Now they're the ones who will face the most harsh judgment at the end. Now when I uh, arrived here in Morton uh, a number of years ago now, it was very interesting talking to people about the church and what they thought of the church. And there was one thing that they compla people complained about almost more than anything else. There I said it was the peace. People didn't like sharing the peace. And particularly on one or two occasions, people said that uh, the same people who come up to them, embrace them on a Sunday, would walk past by them on a Monday without saying anything to them at all, would just ignore them. Now, actually, I have to say, I suspect it's probably they just hadn't spotted them and they didn't realize. It's very easy to do that, actually. But the point remains the same. What we dislike is the religious phony. And nowhere is this phonyism shown more clearly than the love we talk about, but so often fail to show. You know that I've done a, a bit of a study of religious cults in the past. And one of the techniques that cults use is one known as love bombing. So you shower a new member with love. You make them feel the most important person in the world to win them over. One former member of a cult said this, I never felt I had a family until I became part of this church. Never before had I felt so loved. The trouble is that it is a conditional love. It depends on whether you're willing to become and remain a member of the group. Because if you're not, then love is immediately withdrawn, sometimes in the most unpleasant way. Now that is not love. That is emotional bribery or blackmail. And then there are others who will talk about love, who will sing about love, who will preach about love, but will not show it to those closest to them. Julian Lennon once wrote this of his father John. I felt my father was a hypocrite. He could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could never show it to the people who supposedly meant most to him, his wife and son. How can you talk about peace and love and have a family in bits and pieces? No communication, adultery, divorce. You can't. Not if you're being true and honest with yourself. Now, I don't know how true that was of the Lennon family, but I know it's true of many, that we can talk about it. But do we actually live it? See, that is a challenge for the world, is even more so for us as Christian believers. The true Christian is the one who doesn't just talk about love, but actually exercises it unconditionally, who truly loves, even when it is painful to do so. And God's, as John's great desire in this epistle 
is to make sure these Christians love one another. So it's probably good to go back to the whole aim of writing the epistle. If you just move on to chapter 5, just move on to chapter 5 and verse 13, the next page, where John tells us why he writes his letter. He says, I write this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. Now if you know the, uh, the Gospel of John, at the end of the Gospel of John, John tells us why he writes that. He said, I could have written all sorts of things about what Jesus did, but I've just recorded a few so that you might know Jesus is the Christ and knowing have life in his name. In other words, I've written it so you can come to eternal life. So if you want to find out about Christ, if you want to receive the gift of eternal life, read John's Gospel. His letter, his first letter, is written not so that they should have eternal life, but that they should know they have eternal life. That's the key word. I want you to know you have eternal life. I want you to be secure in your faith. I want you to be assured. And so what does he do? He points to the number one sign in the New Testament about how we know someone belongs to Christ. And you know what that is? It's whether we love one another. That is the sign that we belong to Christ. It was, of course, Christ's great command to love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And it was Christ's great command. It is John's abiding concern. You read this, that. You read 2 John. You read 3 John. It's a theme to which he keeps returning. Love one another. In fact, the story is told that in the last days of the great apostle's life, when he was too old and too weak to preach, he will be carried into the Christian assembly on a Sunday morning on a sort of stretcher. He couldn't stand to preach, he'd just sit up and he would say these words to the congregation. Brethren, love one another. Every week he would say the same thing, so the story goes. Well here it's true in his letters. And in this part of the epistle he focuses our attention on this great command. Seven times in these few verses he uses the word love. He says you must love one another. And we are to love one another in the, because God loved us. And in the way that God loved us, because in Christ, God showed us what true love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 16. That's how we are to be. And in this passage, he mentions three things that will prevent the flow of true love. That will stop us truly loving one another. That will mean that we... Don't love each other in the way that we should, but only in words or tongues. So what are these three things? First, there's jealousy, verse 12. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. We mustn't be like Cain. The story of Cain and Abel is one of the most powerful in the Bible. And it all comes down to Cain's jealousy of his brother Abel. Do you remember the story that they both made their offerings to God? Abel brought the first fruits of his livestock. Cain brought some of the fruit of his soil. The implication is that Abel brought the very best to God because God deserves only the very best. Cain just brought all the fag ends, the leftovers, just some of the fruit of the soil. Abel's offering was accepted by God, but Cain's was not. And Cain was angry. And he was so jealous that he took his own brother's life. See, right at the very beginning of the Bible, we learn how deadly jealousy can be. And jealousy is always the enemy of love, for a very simple reason. Jealousy is based on pride. It's based on injured pride, because somebody else has the position that we want. 
The essence of pride, you see, is me first. I want me to have all the attention. I want me to be the center. But unfortunately, we get jealous because other people occupy the place that we want. Now, you cannot love somebody and at the same time be jealous of them. The one will inevitably diminish the other. Jealousy is ubiquitous, isn't it? It's everywhere. We see it in the youngest of children when someone else gets the prize. We see it in the most mature of academics in universities. So much of university life is, is terribly jealous. People get very jealous of each other's work. Or it might be pop stars or film stars. You go to the Oscars or whatever, and you can see everybody's determined that they win the prize. And you can see the look on their faces when somebody else gets it. Okay, they try and mask it, but you know what's going on inside. I wish I had it. I wish it was mine. And we therefore begin to resent other people's success. We see it in clergy or ministers who are jealous of other churches and other churches' success. It's there in all of us. Or was it that Gore Vidal once said, whenever an acquaintance of mine succeeds, a part of me dies. Terribly cynical, but there's a truth in it, isn't there? And jealousy is always the enemy of love. We get jealous of somebody else's money, of their job, of their family, of their success, of their looks. It comes into all areas of life. That's why in politics it's said that you never have friends in your own party because you're always vying with each other for position. Jealousy is always the enemy of love. And so maybe we just need to ask ourselves, are we jealous? Do we envy one another? One another's success, one another's children, one another's job, one another's house, whatever it may be. Well, if we're true to love one another, we cannot be jealous. Second, the second enemy of love is, well, hatred. It sounds very obvious, doesn't it? Verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. Or see, Cain's jealousy turned to hatred, and he committed murder. And it's a very obvious point, isn't it? That, of course, obviously, hatred is the opposite of love. But it does need to be, need to be said, doesn't it? You see, we cannot bear ill will towards a fellow believer, the church girl, and still claim to be a Christian ourselves. We can't resent them. We can't be angry at them. We can't be bitter at them. We have to renounce those things because we know where they lead. They lead to murder, not maybe in an active physical sense, but wishing them dead, wishing them away, wishing to have nothing to do with them. See, what is it that more often than not causes issues and problems within churches and church fellowships? What is it that prevents God doing his work amongst us? Well, the fact, too often, the Christians don't get on. In fact, not only do they not get on, sometimes they can't bear each other. I've been in churches where Christians just simply will not talk to one another. When they've been walking down the road, and they've crossed onto the other side of the street just to avoid somebody else. Or where they will hold such deep bitterness against somebody else, and nothing will change it. Well, what does John say? Anyone who hates another Christian is really a murderer at heart. It's another translation. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Just that again. Anyone who hates another Christian, another believer, is really a murderer at heart. It's very strong words, isn't it? I don't know if it's a, an issue amongst us, but if we are finding it hard to love somebody else, if we bear a grudge against someone, then we need to sort it out. Jealousy, hatred, and then lastly, maybe almost most importantly, is indifference. Verse 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
How can God's love be in that person? The enemy of love, you see, doesn't have to be hatred. It is often simply indifference. It's not that we dislike people. It's not that we hate them. It's just that we are indifferent to them. We don't really care less. We see the needs they have. We know something of their situation. We have the capacity to help with it or deal with it. But we do nothing, simply because we don't care. And John says, if that is true of us, how can God's love be in us? Very telling question, isn't it? And it leaves us with a challenge. Which of our fellow believers is in need? And what are we doing about it? If we're doing nothing, are we really Christian at all? Are we doing all we can to help our brothers and sisters in Christ? Now there are many, there's a multitude of ways in which we can show our love towards our fellow believers. We can pray for them. We can give to them. We can serve them. We can encourage them. Give a phone call. We can bear their burdens. We can teach them. Yes, at times we admonish them. There are all sorts of ways in which we can offer that sort of care for one another. Next week we have an opportunity to offer hospitality to one another, to invite people for a meal. I'm not sure whether it's because we're, we're British, but I, I don't think we generally find hospitality very easy. But it's a wonderful way of showing our love for one another, extending Christ's love to others. And my prayer is it's not just on one Sunday in the year, but it becomes often, it becomes a habit that we become a church that offers hospitality constantly to one another. It may be just offering a cup of coffee, pop round for a coffee, or whatever. It may be a meal. It may be all sorts of things. But let's pray that we would truly love one another, that we would not be indifferent to one another and to one another's concerns and cares and needs. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You may know the uh, Roman writer Pliny. There's no great lover of Christian people. He was often sort of uh, slagging them off in his letters from a province where he was the provincial governor. But at the same time, he had a, a sneaking regard and admiration for Christians. And on one occasion, he said one of his letters, he said, see how these Christians love one another. He was a pagan. He had no love for the Christian faith. And yet he could see there was something different about them. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people said, see how these Christians here love one another. Let's pray that we would do that, not with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Shall we pray? And then we'll sing our final hymn together. Let's pray together. Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Heavenly Father, please forgive us when we get jealous of one another. We hold grudges against one another. Or we're just simply indifferent to one another's needs. Please forgive us because we know that that should not be so amongst your people, your family. And I pray you'd help each one of us in whatever way we can to show your love to those around us, those who are our brothers and sisters. Help us to love in the way that we should, we ask. In Jesus' name. Shall we turn to our final hymn then? It's number 442, Lord of the Church. And while we sing, our offering for God's work will be received. If you are a visitor, by any chance, 
Uh, please don't feel under any obligation to give. It's very much for the church family. If you'd like to, you're welcome. And please don't feel under any obligation. But shall we stand to sing number 442?